Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. It's been a week since the last one, and Richard Herring has not lost any weight at all. Please welcome Richard Herring. <laughs> hello, it's hello. It's lovely to see you all again. Uh, what you said uh, is uh, welcome to uh, uh, Richard Herring's. Local Standard Time podcast. <laughs> Whatever time you're listening to it, it's Local Standard Time. That's the guarantee. Wherever you are, it's Local Standard Time right now. And that is, that's our new gimmick. <laughs> uh, though I was talking to... Um, why have I written them in all different places in the book? I was looking at pornographic versions of the astrology signs in the window of a video shop with my French exchange student, uh, Nicole, Nicolas, he's called. Uh, he calls it Rehelestabus. I don't know if that's going to catch on, so at least I did that right. Let's have a look and see who's here today. If anyone, if anyone new here, I don't know if we've uh, seen you before in the centre. Have we seen you before, sir? No, first time. First time you come and you're some, sat front and centre. What's your name, sir? James. James. And uh, uh, what do you do for a living, James? Like work in IT? Uh, no, I'm retired. You're retired. What did you do, worked in uh, IT? I was a lawyer. You're a lawyer, but that's like the working IT of the olden days when you were, when you were, they didn't have IT back then, so you had to get a proper job. And who's this young man with you? My son. Oh, it's your son, that's all right, then that's all, that's okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, you went like that, as if, yeah, I'm not really his son, that's what, that's the story we've come up with. To come. We're not filming you, it's fine. You look a little bit like Ian Morris, the creator of, co-creator of The Inbetweeners, but we'll let that pass. Uh, what was your, your name was... Eddie, you didn't say your name. And what do you do for a living, Eddie? I'm a fundraiser. You're a fundraiser? Yeah. I mean, that's what everyone does, mate. That's the point of a job. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you do it for other people. Yeah. That's nice, isn't it? but you get a little bit, don't you? You get a little bit, you get a little bit off, don't you? Yeah, you get a little bit, a little bit. Off. What's the most funds you've ever raised in a day? Because uh, mine, I'll tell you what mine is, 150,000 fucking quid. What's, what's yours? I've just started. It's my first day. It's my first day. They just show you how to work the fundraiser machines. I haven't don't let you raise. Who you're raising funds for? Uh, the no. Nazi party? What? <laughs> God. Uh, it is hard, yeah. So good luck with that difficult job. Getting easier though, isn't it? So uh, it's going to turn out to be getting a lot easier. <laughs> The much easier sell. Love, it's love to meet you. Is it your first time here, Eddie? Yeah, because yeah, I would have met you before. What did you do before you were a fundraiser, Eddie? I was a student. Were you a student of fundraising? Uh, yes. Yeah, yes! <laughs> it's good. It's nice that two generations can come and enjoy, enjoy the show together. <laughs> Maybe you could have a son as well and bring him along. Yeah. Well, you yeah, know, all three of you can sit there. You feel that fancy chances? There's a, there's a lady there. That's how, that's how it works. Believe me, I didn't know till like, mine turned up. <laughs> Four years. Four years. My daughter wanted... Uh, when she was three, we made her a rabbit cake. That's what she said she wanted until the day of her party. And we got to the, the party. She said, I want Spider-Man and Elsa cake. <laughs> so she had a rabbit cake, so she was disappointed. But she still wanted a Spider-Man and Elsa cake a year later, and she got it. Spider with Elsa on the top from Frozen. Don't need to tell you, Eddie. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and <laughs> it's good when just some some of the older people go, I don't know what that is, and then we go, Gus Honeyburn. Oh, that's fine. Um, anyway, she, she got she got it. She's fine. <laughs> right, let's move on. I think we. I think I think I, I rocked that. It was all ad libbed. You wouldn't believe it, would you? <laughs> Tightly scripted. So my guest this week is probably best known for his role. This was really difficult, because everything he's done is really good. <laughs> Except one thing, which I want to talk to him about later. Uh, so, <laughs> he's probably best known for playing Little John in the wrong 1991 film of Robin Hood. <laughs> Will you please welcome David Morrissey, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> David Morrissey. Welcome. Come in, sit down. (laughs) 
What was the right version of Robin Hood? The, the Prince of Thieves was the right one. Oh, I never it? watched that. <laughs> Didn't that have an annoying song in it? <laughs> it did have that annoying song. Yeah. That's, that's, what, that's what you needed, just needed an annoying... You tried I was to... in the version with Uma Thurman. I think that was a good, uh, <laughs> good choice on my part. That was pretty good. But did little John get to get off with Uma Thurman? Not saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, if he did, I'm watching that. Was it? <laughs> yeah. Um, I would, I'd like to. I have watched some uh, versions of, of, of <laughs> Little John Thomas. <laughs> so there's lots I want to talk to you about, and there's so much stuff that is unbelievable. But mainly, I got you on because I loved you being the governor in The Walking Dead. Ah, so that is right. that is okay. why. Good. Which it, it's <laughs> he was a baddie that you're allowed to. He was. We you sit and watch The Walking Dead going boo every time. Boo. Quite right. Um, it's a phenomenal job of acting that I think like I, we really I've gone off The Walking Dead recently because right. you're not in it right okay and it just they're too stupid who are they're, all the people they've had zombies for ages and they keep going oh let's go out of the the, the stock <laughs> and go and split up and walk around yeah remember what happened last time and we got tied to things and people got hit with baseball bats oh yeah probably won't happen this time oh it happened again <laughs> <laughs> But it was a fa- it was such a. I was in season three and season four. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was such great. an intense and amazing character. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, That's and I, and I love doing it. I mean, I sort of um, I was in LA anyway because my my best friend is an actor called Ian Hart, and uh, he's a great guy. And he was over there. He was living over there, and I went to visit him. And whilst I was there, I got a manager. I didn't have a manager before. And I got this manager and he said, do you fancy going off for The Walking Dead? And I knew The Walking Dead because Andrew Lincoln and uh, Lenny James were both friends of mine and yeah. I'd watched it and I'd liked it. I thought it was great. But the way these things work, you don't know what character you're going up for. You know, they don't, it's so much secrecy around it. So, of course, what I did was go to the local bookshop, read up to where they are in the TV series <laughs> and think, well, who's the next big character? You know, so, and that was the governor. Yeah. So I sort of knew that's what the thing was. But the guy, the governor in the um, in the comics or the graphic novels is is real badass straight off. You know, right. he's horrible. He's just really, you know. So I, th- I was thinking, okay, you know, I know this is a big role, but he doesn't last that long either. Right. either. But when I met met the new showrunner Glenn Mazzara, he said they wanted to do something different with it, and they really did. They started him in his journey much earlier. You know, they started him with two eyes rather than one. Yes. And uh, you know, and you don't know where you are with him. You think he's uh, what he what he presenting to people is very different to who he is. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, what is very you know, it was gripping and terrifying. Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of. Just from that role, you're sort of terrified. I've met you before, but like before I met right. you, I thought, I'm slightly terrified to <laughs> meet you because of that role, which you must get a lot. Yeah, it's quite handy. I yeah. mean, you know, <laughs> it's quite handy when people come up to you and you think, well, you just have to turn a look on them and they go, oh, well, sorry. But um, I love the show. I mean, I, yeah. I mean I, I'm a big, you know, the great thing about being in The Walking Dead is it does have a massive fan base. Yeah. Uh, and I also was in uh, Doctor Who for one episode. It's very similar in the fact that the fans really take the ownership of the show. They take the show seriously. They take the characters seriously. And I love that. And the interaction I have with the fans. And I, go, I do Comic-Cons and yeah. stuff like that. I mean, that's the real pleasure for me is there's a, there's a sense that you get to meet the fans of the show who are very vocal and care very much, you know. And that's... Uh, I find that really exciting. Yeah. It was, you know, so you were joining it and it was already established as one of the biggest shows in the world. And mm-hmm. then so were you sort of prepared for that? For that? Well, actually, I mean, this isn't me blowing my own trumpet, but it hadn't really got to that point. It had done two seasons. Right. And it was a sleeping hit. You know, people right. liked it and stuff. Um, the third season and the fourth season, it's suddenly, not because I was in it, but the stories changed and they, they really did hit a... It became yeah. the biggest show in the world then. Yeah, okay. And I remember it was interesting someone booing me because the, <laughs> uh, they, they, every season they show their, uh, the, the trailer of what's coming next at San Diego Comic-Con. And the first season I was at San Diego Comic-Con, my character hasn't come on, nobody knows who I am. And they introduce everybody and there's about 10,000 people in the audience. And you walk on and they say, ladies and gentlemen, Norman Reedus. And the crowd go, absolutely berserk. You know? And then they say, Andrew Lincoln, berserk. You know? 
They'll go down the line, Stephen, you and everybody. Get to me, nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. And I walk in and I think, because oh, no one has seen me. And then the next year, I get there, Andrew Lincoln, everyone's screaming, you know, normal reads. I come on, 10,000 people boo me. <laughs> And I've never been more pleased in my life. It was great. And I went to the front, and I was like... Bleh. And it was great. And suddenly I thought, oh, they like it, you know. Yeah. It's a great show to do in the sense that it's a really well-run show as well. You know, you, uh, you see the actors, but backstage, the, the, what goes into that show? I mean, it's something like, I think it's like about seven to eight million dollars an episode. Yeah. So they're like mini films. You're making mini films, except you're shooting it in eight days. Right. You know, so it's crazy. But the camaraderie is brilliant. I, I mean, the, the, everyone dies on the. I do think they brought me onto The Walking Dead to get rid of the wage bill. <laughs> because I killed so many people. I was like known as Mr. P45, really. Um, but what happens is that you're, you have eight days to shoot it. But on day four, the episode comes in for the next episode. And it's there at lunchtime. So you go into your trailer and it's there. And of course, like any actor, you read it backwards. So you turn it upside down and think, am, am I still in it? And you get to your name and you're still alive. You think, oh, great. So then you turn it over and you read it properly. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you read it properly, someone's or, someone will die. And it's usually me who's killed them. Yes. Or it was in season three. And you think, oh, gosh. And then you open the door to the trailer and everybody sort of comes out at the same time, except one door is closed. <laughs> And that person is phoning their agents and their managers saying, well, I'm off next week. I'm gonna go. And that's, and it's really hard. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's an unusual show. In the, I mean, that's what was the exciting thing about it was there wasn't... No, they... I mean, even with Andrew Lincoln, you kind of think that he could go. And he, yeah, yeah. And it wasn't like Star Trek. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like, you know, there was five guys and one was just in a red shirt and you knew he wasn't longer. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't going to last long. You know, it was always... You never knew who was going to go. No. Uh, and, you know, there was practical uh, reasons for that. And that's the secrecy happened then. Yeah. We used to have these old things where we, whenever anybody died, we'd all go out for a meal, uh, you know, during the, during the week to say goodbye and everything. And we had to stop doing that because whenever more than four or five of us just went out, <laughs> there were all these rumors went out that one of us was going to die. And it's like, no. So then you couldn't go anywhere. That was wild. So then we used to just have them in people's houses and stuff. Right. And does the fandom ever, has it ever got like weird or scary? Is it, is it I had a Beatles moment, which was just fantastic. It was we were, again, we were in San Diego and um, it was a launch of the show and they had the Walking Dead party. And we went, and everyone's dressed as zombies, and it's great, and it's fantastic. And I needed to go, because I was flying back to the UK the next day. And I said to the girl who was looking after us, I need to go now. And she said, okay, we'll get you out the other entrance. And she said, uh, she was on the phone, she said, your limo's here, let me take you out. And she got me through the other entrance and just left me out. And I walked out, I was on the street, and I thought, my car's not here. And then I saw my car at the other entrance down there, and in between was about 5,000 Walking Dead fans. <laughs> And I turned around, one guy turned and saw me and they all just started running towards me. <laughs> and I was signing stuff and signing stuff and my driver saw me and he was going, come on, come on. <laughs> so then I had to get through that and then they all ran after me. Yeah. And I jumped into this limo, closed the door and they were banging on the limo <laughs> and people were on it and they're driving off. And he said, I'm sorry about that, sir. And I said, that was fantastic. <laughs> I loved it, it was great. It was like, you know. That Beatles moment, it yeah. felt great. But it's never, no, it's never got uh, weird for me. I mean, people are very polite. You know, nine times out of ten, people are so polite. And it does help that you play someone who's a complete arsehole. Yeah. You know, and a killer and stuff like that. That's handy. You know, I mean, Andy gets a lot of stuff which people are just want to hug him a lot. But yeah. no, people are very respectful. And, you know, you're no renowned for your meticulous research and inhabiting a role. How do you research being a man in the middle of a zombie apocalypse, apart from having lots of fans run at you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, what, what I did do, and I am a bit of a geek when it comes to all these things. So what I did was I did a lot of reading about the Black Plague. Right. So it was all about Europe, you know, in, in the, I think it was the 1400s or whatever, and about how the plague affected society, how people 
at the top echelons of our society were dying out. So people who had no experience had to start taking control of stuff, you know, and how people built walls around their cities, not only to keep people out, but to keep people in. So they didn't want the infection going in and out. Yeah, yeah. So all of that then. I did a lot of research on this, a book called The 47 Principles of Power or something, which is really tough. I read a lot about dictatorships. Yeah. Uh, and then accent-wise, I listened to uh, Bill Clinton's audio book, which was quite... I mean, he's from Arkansas, and we're set in sort of Georgia, but, you know, so what? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I got around that a bit. But, you know, but that was the accent stuff. Yeah. And then you... So there's, there's stuff like that you're doing as well. Yeah, it's... Because not all actors are that meticulous. Right, have you got examples? <laughs> well, me. <laughs> uh, when I do acting, I don't work that hard. Uh, reading stuff, no. But I, that's, I don't get many jobs. That's from, that's from... <laughs> Maybe those two things go hand in hand. <laughs> know, you wanna I'm always out. cast as perverts and stuff. So, well, you know, I, don't know I think you've is. done a lot of research <laughs> on that. <laughs> yeah, Just live it, live it. Um, Your computer history would differ. <laughs> Uh, no, it's, it's, well, um, you do mention we'll, make, we'll talk about Doctor Who briefly as you as you mentioned that, which you you sort of played you sort of played the Doctor, and it was yeah. those rumours you were going to be the Doctor. Yeah, there was this, this really weird thing. So uh, you know, I did the Christmas special, so of course we filmed it in February, and uh, so we were putting false snow everywhere, and it was called the Next Doctor, and it was about a guy who thought he was Doctor Who. He'd been sort of. Uh, attacked by the Cybermen, and he had this fugue, fugue thing gone on his head, and he sort of picked up some data from the Cybermen about Doctor Who, and he wants to be Doctor Who. And then David Tennant, as his Doctor Who, as the real Doctor, comes down, and they sort of interact. And after we finished it, uh, I got a call from uh, Russell T. Davis, who said, listen, David's leaving. Nobody knows, but he's leaving. Your episode's called The Next Doctor, so there'll probably be some rumors going around that you're the next Doctor. Please don't tell anyone it's not you. And I said, oh, okay. I said, but I, you know, I can tell my kids. And he went, no. He said, you live in North London. One of your kids obviously knows somebody who works for a newspaper or something like that. They'll go out. So they couldn't tell. So for months and months, the rumor was coming out. And my kids were like, are we moving to Cardiff? And I was like, I can't tell you. <laughs> Do your homework, I might tell you. you know? <laughs> and so they had to deal with this thing. And then I got a little insight into what it was like. You know, people were camping outside my house, taking photographs and stuff. And then it didn't happen, you know, didn't they? Because I, I knew it wasn't going to yeah, happen, yeah, yeah. you know. So it was, it was no surprise to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, tuning in, going, hang on a minute. It's Matt Smith. No, so, uh, but no, I knew it wasn't going to be me. But I, I did, I loved doing it. Yeah. Because it was one of the few things for me that I did that my children could watch. Because <laughs> I'd, I'd done so many things where I'm either killing people or, you know, in bed with them or both sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, so there was, it was sort of the one thing that I, one of the few things I've done where my kids could actually tune in. You yeah. know? So that was, it was great for me. And their friends could tune in, you know. It was the time that my kids realized I was an actor. <laughs> That's why you leave the house. Yeah. So no, that that was great. Would you fancy it though if they, if it came up again and you were you offered that role? Would that be one you wanted to do? Yeah, I think it's in good hands. Uh, I think Jodie's fantastic, but um, it's I love the show. I'd love to be back in the show in some way. Uh, I think you know, and, and I think Chris Chibnall, who's writing it now, I think you know, I'm looking forward to what he does next and stuff in the next season. So yeah, I tune in every now and again. I really like it. So um, yeah, yeah, I'm open to offers. So you played Gordon Brown alongside Michael Sheen, who was meant to be a guest on this show, but at least you turned up, so that's yeah. uh, something. Um, well, I only live around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> he was in New York, to be fair. Yeah. Uh, it was a bit of a, a different, difficult commute. Um, he played Tony Blair, yeah. Yeah, you were Tony Blair in, in, the, in the original one. There was a it's few called The Deal. The Deal, yeah, yeah. It was Peter Morgan, and it was all about the formation of... Uh, New Labour. Yeah. And how uh, there was a pact made, or supposedly a pact made, between Gordon Brown and Tony Blair about who would be the next leader. And they all, everybody felt that Gordon Brown would be that leader at that time. And um, I think Tony Blair had sort of urged him to be the leader before then. Yeah. Uh, but John Smith was the natural successor. And when John Smith died, sadly, um, then Gordon just presumed 
he would become the leader and Tony sort of went in there. Right. And uh, it was about the deal that, that, that they'd made between each other that Tony would be leader for a while and then Gordon would come up and then, you know, we all know what happened after that. Yeah. So you couldn't, you couldn't, he wouldn't, well, did you try to talk to Gordon Brown? I did try. Yeah. I was I was surprised I wasn't arrested actually because I sort of went and uh, sat in my car outside his house in Kakodi and stuff. And um, yeah, I, I, used to, I, I did stalk him for a while. Uh, and uh, and I watched a lot of his stuff, and then I went to his his father was a minister in 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 Scotland, and I went to his church and I looked at that, and you know, and there's lots of books about Gordon, but uh, yeah, I did I did a lot of research on him, and I liked him actually, and you know, I liked his politics a lot, and yeah. um, I admired him, and also I thought he was that character that was privately was one personality you know everybody would talk about what he was like privately that he was funny and i was like funny <laughs> yeah yeah he was a raconteur he was very funny he told jokes and i was like that's not the guy i'm watching it's not the guy i see on the tv and so i had to talk to a lot of his friends about what he was like outside of of the public arena and very different and also very volatile you know the stories of him just grabbing people and pushing them up against right. the wall but also I found it fascinating that he was a man who the Scottish education system had did this thing when he was at school where they advanced people by a year if they were clever. But he was so clear, clever that had already happened to him. So he, he was advanced by two years. Right. So he was arriving at Edinburgh University at 16 and they knew he was coming. You know, they were waiting for him because he was this legend, academic legend around, yeah. around Scotland. And just before he arrived in this place where, you know, the hallowed halls of Edinburgh University, he played rugby in this old, uh, you know, old pupils, the teacher's game, and he got banged in the head and his retinas went. And he started losing his sight. So he's just about to arrive at this place where he's already a star. And he, you know, this is a long time ago, he has to lie in this darkened room for hours on end. And he was a voracious reader, so he couldn't read anymore oh, no. because he was having these very painful eye operations. And I, it's sort of that man in a hurry came from that place. Yeah. That, you know, his, not just his uh, academic education, but his emotional education was stopped at that point, really cruelly, I think. And from then on, he was a man in a hurry. He really wanted to sort of get on. And, um, but it had been taken away from him at that time, I think. Right. That's fresh. I didn't know that, man. That's very interesting. But you, you, you played, uh, you did... Um you did follow Peter Mandelson around. That was for a different... Uh, yeah, so the, Peter Mandelson was very kind to me because I was doing a thing called State of Play. And a friend of mine knew him a bit and I sort of said, listen, would he meet me? And he said, yes. And I got a message back saying he'd meet me for 15 minutes at Paul Cullis' house. Your bottle's just about to go there. Oh. And I uh, dropped your bottle. And uh, well done, sir. Thank you. And um, so I met him for 15 minutes. At the end of 15 minutes, he said... Do you want to, you know, I think he trusted me. And I, I spent the day with him in the house then. And just seeing how politicians, he wasn't the only person I met at that time. I met quite a few other politicians. And just seeing how politicians worked in the house from their constituencies. For State of Play was a different job. It was about a man, a young politician who was on the, on the rise. He was from the north of England coming down to London and he was a star. And he does something in order to, to get to the top level and it, and it all goes wrong for him. He's, his ambition gets the best of him. And just I, all I wanted from politicians was none of their ideology. I just wanted to know what their job was. And Peter was very good at just telling me what the job was. And the other politicians I met as well about being on committees, about having an office, you know, a constituency, have, you know, going up there, spending your time in there, coming to Westminster. And I got a lot of you know, I'm like everybody else, you know, I want our politicians to do a better job. But I got a real inkling about what the job was for them yeah. and how difficult it, it was, you know, and the, the surgeries and stuff like that and how they do that. I mean, that's a part of us that we, a part of uh, politicians that we don't see and understand a lot of the time. Well, I think, you know, especially Gordon Brown and Peter Bannison certainly get a very hard time and Blair get a very hard time in retrospect. And yeah, yeah you know, and, and, and they probably deserve to as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm not, I don't want them all, you know, my thing with politicians is I think they should do their job rather than appear on Have I Got News For You and stuff like that. You know, I don't want them to tell me jokes. I don't want them to be personalities. I don't want them to sort of, I just want them to do their job. 
Yeah. And, you know, some of them have, you know, they've buggered it up a bit. But, you know, I think there is a sense of them, uh, the job they do, some of them do a really good job sure. doing small stuff. Yeah. You know? But uh, they're all out to make it. You know, that thing of, uh, you know, what they say is politician, pol politics is entertainment, people, entertainment for ugly people. <laughs> And I think it's, uh, you know, that's sort of, once they brought cameras into the, uh, into the parliament, that all went out. They all started having their hair done and their, you know, everything. <laughs> I was wearing makeup and stuff. But, um, yeah, I mean, I really got a lot more respect for them when I started working on them and seeing what they had to do. Now, let's go back to the beginning. Your dad was a cobbler. Yep. Did he ever have... <laughs> they're not, they're, Why they're, is that funny? They're ahead, of, <laughs> they're ahead of me, don't worry. This is the thing. Did he ever have a machine, magic machine that if you, if you ever made shoes on, you could then put on the shoes and become the person who with the, who oh. wore the shoes? No, he didn't have one of no. them. Okay. No. Have no. you seen the Cobbler with by Adam Sandler? I haven't seen the Cobbler. Oh, by you, Adam must, Sandler. you must watch it. Is that it? Yeah, and, and the Cobbler. Adam Sandler's dad's a Cobbler. I'm not up on my Adam yeah, Sandler. Yeah, well, you gotta watch. You gotta watch Adam Sandler. You might get into an Adam Sandler film. I mean, that's. Well, the Holy Grail. Yeah. Uh, for, that's what I'm hoping for. Have you for. been in an Adam Sandler? I haven't. He does lots of perverts and <laughs> stuff in those. So He's I'm, looking for a pervert, aren't you? He's an English pervert. I'm not racist or homophobic enough to be in, uh, to be in one of his films. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, but So it, tell it, me about the cobbler. So, so his dad's a cobbler, then his dad dies, and then he goes and finds this old cobbling machine. I'm sure your dad had some cobbling machines. <laughs> he had a lot. Yeah. Uh, and, and he makes some shoes on it. Yeah. And then he put on the shoes, and they fitted him, and then he turns, he turns into the person who... He becomes the person who ever... Wow. I just wondered if that happened to all cobblers, or if that was just Adam Sandler. I did, well, maybe it's an American cobbler thing. Yeah. Maybe that's what Daniel Day-Lewis was doing on his... <laughs> <laughs> on his sabbatical where he became a cobbler. He was yeah, like yeah. making Lincoln shoes yeah, and, then and then putting them on and that was it. That was how he's Maybe that's missing a chick. That's cheating and acting, isn't it? it you is. do all the research and... and well, Beryl Reed always said once she got the shoes, she got the character. Yeah, there you go. That was it. So maybe that's where we go with that. <laughs> maybe Adam Sandler heard that quote by Beryl Reed and thought there's a movie in this. <laughs> it's a great film. I'll, I'll, I'll buy the DVD and send it to you. No. I think you'll get a lot... <laughs> I think you'll get a lot Don't out of it. Don't bother. It's my thing. <laughs> Talking of bad films. Um, I wonder so, what's coming up. <laughs> I haven't seen Basic Instinct 2. What do you mean? I saw Basic Instinct 1, Basic Instinct. Yeah. But I didn't see Basic Instinct 2. What, well, you haven't lived is I've all I've seen I'm the saying. trailer to Basic Instinct 2. So it came along a little time after Basic Instinct uh, well, yes, a couple of years after. Was it yeah. only a couple of years? No, it was about ten years, yeah, I yeah. think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so it was a big break for you. Obviously, you're the main male role of alongside Sharon break. Stone. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was one of those ones where they flew me to LA, and uh, I met Sharon in a. Uh, you know, we had a read through on camera. I got on the plane. I came home, and when I got off the plane, I Heathrow, the, the phone call was there to say I got the part. I was delighted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But you know, you don't know. The thing as an actor, you don't know how things are going to turn out, and it, f it feels to me like. Oh no, God, uh, you never feels, want to. But the reviews were horrible. Reviews were absolutely and killing, very horrible yeah. about you. There's Massively. Um, in America, let me see if I can find it. <laughs> <laughs> there was just one thing that the Washington Post said. I just thought that's out of order. Really? They wouldn't, they wouldn't have done that if. Well, you why don't you quote it now? I think they said. They said you. No, can I ask, did they spell my name with two R's and two S's? Because that's all I care about. <laughs> I'm not sure. They called you a sad sack. A sad sack? Uh, yeah. That's not very nice. That's you sure that was my whole body? or just Because <laughs> there was a lot of nakedness in there. There was a lot of nudity in Basic Instinct too. So, so maybe that was just a specific part of my body they were talking about. <laughs> Rather than the whole and a perky character. penis. <laughs> you got a sad sack and a perky penis. <laughs> You know, in but some scenes, in others, not so perfect. <laughs> I did spend a lot of my time naked in that film. It was so weird, because they sent me to a personal trainer for months in America, and that was great. I love that. It was like training all the time. It was great. And uh, I've told this story before, but uh, at the end, uh, when we went to the screening, I was with my, with my wife, and uh, there's this scene where I come down this 
stairs in Sharon's house, and I'm just wearing a towel. And I'm like that, you know, doing my <laughs> movement. And I'm in the kitchen, and I have to open this fridge and take out something and close the fridge. And in the screening, my wife, who's not seen the film at all, this is the first time she's seeing it, she turns around to me and she goes, oh, we should get a fridge like that. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me? It's so weird. And I just, so I spend most of my time, <laughs> I suppose most of my time on that film just walking around naked. You know? I mean, I had flip flops on, you know, I'm not, yeah. not that much of an exhibitionist. Did you, did you get the fridge? No, we never no, got no. the fridge. <laughs> no. Did you get the fridge? No, it was a very specialized fridge. They only make them in America. <laughs> and after that, I was like, no, you can. You know, one of those little ones with the beers in. Yeah. But it was like, I, my first time I had a sex scene on, on, this, on that film, the costume girl said to me, would you like a sock? And I was like, what do you mean, a sock? And she said, you know, to wear on your bed. And I was like, oh, I didn't, I've never done one of these scenes before. I don't know, don't know what a sock is. And she said, well, it's something you put your cock and balls in. You know? It's a modesty pouch, she said. And I was like, that sounds ridiculous. So she took me into the costume trailer and she had three on the thing <laughs> of various sizes. And I was like, look, I don't, I don't know whether I want to wear a sock. And then she said, well, just want you to know, Kevin Bacon wore this in the last <laughs> film. <I was>, uh, <laughs> and I was like, oh, so, you know, maybe that, yeah, that's your five degrees of separation yeah, to Kevin Bacon. That's you know. a new level. I've had my cock in his sock. <laughs> but um, anyway, I didn't wear it. I couldn't wear it. I put it on. I put it on and thought I looked completely daft. It was like my trunks had shrunk. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no. So I just didn't wear anything. And uh, yeah, I quite liked it. <laughs> it's great. How did Sharon Stone feel about you being... Uh, she was happy? fine about it, because she was naked as well. Okay. You know, so it, it, it's so weird. I think some of the crew found it a bit weird. <laughs> but you, it's the, you do weird things. There was one scene we had where I'm, it was quite weird. You've not seen it. And I presume most of you haven't seen it. But there was one scene where... I, I, it's quite a strange film. There's one thing where we're having sex, and as we're having sex, she gets this belt and she throws it around my, my neck and she pulls this belt. And it's quite a tricky manoeuvre, you know. So we're, we're doing the scene and she can't, she can't get it around my neck. So I'm sort of pretending to make love to her. And I'm sort of, <laughs> I'm sort of at the same time, because I'm supposed to take me by surprise, but because I want everything to go so well and to talk, get out of her, I'm sort of trying to get my head around this thing. And eventually the director, who's this big, burly Scottish guy, is so annoyed. He says, Sharon, get off there, get off there. And he gets on, he says, dear, get on top of me. And so I get on top of him. <laughs> so now I'm naked on top of this guy who's massive. And, and I'm sort of not doing anything like that, but I'm just sort of <laughs> sitting there like that. And he goes, what you do is you get like that. And he goes, poof. And he goes, and he hits me in the head with the buckle. And my head goes, poof. And we have to stop filming for two weeks. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like, what'd you do at work today, Dad? Uh, so it was, it was quite a weird experience. And the worst, the worst you, took, you read that review, and uh, so then you have to promote the film. <laughs> I went to America, and I'm, I'm in this little rented place, and I know the film stinks, and I know everybody thinks it stinks. And suddenly, you know, I'm on my own. Everybody else who was my mate about, you know, five months ago suddenly... Hello? They're not there anymore. And uh, I was watching this TV show, and this guy said, so the film's out this weekend, uh, Basic Instinct 2, starring Sharon Stone and David Morrissey. And if you know who David Morrissey is, you're probably David Morrissey. And I was like, yes, I am! <laughs> <laughs> I said, fuck it up. So then you have to do all the talk shows and everybody hates it and everyone's taking the piss out of it. So, and you're not allowed to join in with taking the piss out of it. No. Because you've got to be, you know, that's against contract. Or all you want to say is, look, you know, do you want to see my house I bought? You know, that's what you want to say. <laughs> but you you sort of got to sit there and you've got to do all that. So it's tough. Really. There was an element of, because you weren't, Known, I think, in America. Was in America, I wasn't known. Nobody knew who so I was. was so I, so I took it. And also, I'm a huge fan of the first film. Yeah. The first film was a great film. And, uh, and actually, this script was a great film, but it was one of the a great script. But in production, it just went, you know, it just went crazy. 
and you realize that this is, there's a lot of money in this film, and it doesn't matter what the film's like to the end of it, it's just gonna, it's, it's a check that hasn't been cashed, and it's gonna be cashed. Yeah. But you're there to do your job, you wanna do the best job you can, so you're on it. But uh, it was quite sobering. Up. I, I mean, I did feel very low at the end of it, but then, you know, by that time I'd done three jobs in between. Was so. there a point, was, I read that there was a point you were thinking about you wanted to give up acting at that yeah. point. Yeah, I mean, because so you, know, well, you were a very successful actor by that point, so it's only one job. Yeah, it's a, yeah it was it was a bit of a, an overreaction, but you know, for me, I grew up watching movies. Yeah, I wanted to do movies, and I grew up watching American movies. That's what I wanted to do, and this was my first American movie, and and it was a movie. It was a franchise. It was a movie from something that I thought was really good, and not only was the movie not good, but the experience was not good. It was slightly, I was suddenly working with people who, you know, they weren't, they weren't my people. It didn't feel like my people. And the real difference for me is when you do independent film or television, you've got to be going. You know, there's a, there, it's a fast-paced uh, scenario on a day. And I like that. There's something about it that I like. On this, because there was so much money, you would do days and days where you, the camera didn't turn over. Oh, you do days where you do the same two lines for like 400 times. And I was going crazy. I was like, I want to just move. I want to go. Sure. I want to, you know, I want to feel it and do the best job. I don't want to move on until I felt I've got it. But likewise, I don't want to do 400 takes. <laughs> you know, that's crazy. But that's the weird thing about acting as a job is that you are, it's a very repetitive job. So if you're in a play, you're doing the same thing every night. Yeah, you are, but I mean, you get, you find different things in it. It's yeah. very different to that sense of those big movies where you're then doing the same line so many times, you know, then you sort of, your energy goes, whereas you, I know it does sound like it's repetitive if you're doing a job for six months, but actually because of the live audience, there's always something different. Yeah. Look at this, like this lot, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so you grew up in Liverpool and uh, you were friends with you met quite a lot of the big Liverpool actors as you went you met the you're friends with all the McGanns I am yeah um, do you have a system to tell which uh, is <laughs> yeah um, I was once with the, I, mean, <laughs> I love the McGanns but when I first met them I, I met them for a drink in London and uh, we went to the art club I think and it was great, and we all got very drunk, and uh, they started singing. Right. And, and they do this four-part, brilliant four-part harmony. I think they were in a show called Yakety Yak at the time, so they just were singing. And I can't sing, so I, I'm sitting there, and everybody in the club is looking at us, and I'm in there again. <laughs> but, uh, and they were just wonderful. But Paul McGann particularly has been very kind to me and was really kind to me in my career, yeah. yeah. And, his, and their mum is just the most wonderful woman. And, and uh, when I went to RADA, because I know you had Rob riding on, and he said him and Steve had auditioned for Rada and not got in. Yeah. I got in. <laughs> <And> <laughs> but um, I hated it. For the first, uh, my first uh, term, I hated it. And I got back, and I was very low. I hated London, actually. I found it London very difficult. Yeah. And uh, I met Paul's mom, and I told her about it, and she really just said, stick it out. You know, she really told me to, that Paul had gone through the whole same thing and she really encouraged me to go back to London and stick it out and I'm so glad she did. Really. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, it is, I know this is a question you get asked a lot, but it, is, it feels now that, you know, working class people can't get into acting in the way that they could, you know, a generation ago and your generation as well. I mean, the generation before you, we, we had uh, Albert Finney's just uh, died yeah, recently. Yeah, he, and he, he was a very important person to me to look at because, yeah. you know, he was a working-class man who'd done, you know, very, very well. And not only well in, you know, as a working-class actor, but also done, you know, Reach the Heights playing Hamlet and Macbeth and all those great roles. He'd done all the great Shakespearean roles. And so it, he showed me that it was achievable. Him and many others, people like Tom Courtney and stuff yeah. like that. But my big book bear is about education. You know, I mean, I do a lot of stuff in schools where I talk to people about to pupils about how to get into acting and to not close their uh, you know their their ambition on acting or the arts in general you know the great thing for me about coming from Liverpool was it was a city that took the arts seriously mm -hmm. you know it, it always has you know the, the only reason I stood out amongst my friends for wanting to be an actor was that I didn't want to be in a band 
Because all my mates were musicians. They wanted to be in a band or they knew everything about music. But they didn't look down on me or take the piss out of me because I wanted to be an actor. No. You know, it was, it was really seen and they had great, great theatres there, you know. And so that was good. But now when I go to schools, the arts are really... I mean, I hate this term that we've brought in, which is soft options. That, you know, music, art, drama, they're seen as soft options because the school aren't getting the points they need for yeah. the exam. Yeah. So it's not about creating empathetic people or, you know, well-rounded people or people who... Because, you know, not everybody's going to become an artist or a musician, but the appreciation that you have for those art forms is really important. They're the audiences of tomorrow. And the great thing about, you know, the really important thing creatively is you have to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, a bit like Adam Sandler. <laughs> but you have to, you know... Not so literally, he's a very, literal, Maybe, very literal... I don't, know whether, I don't know whether that's the message of the cobbler. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you have to imagine what it's like to be someone else. Yeah. And the more you take that out of education and the more you want education, you know, obviously maths and English are really important, but the more you take it out of education, the more you, the less communicative you, come as pe you become as people. And I find it, it drives me mad, particularly in state education. It's really hard for schools in the state system to deliver that to their pupils. Whereas obviously in the private sector, it's, you know, it's, they're in abundance. Yeah, well, they've got and that. that's, I think, is reflected on our screens and on our stage. But also, uh, someone who comes from a wealthy family can come to London for a couple of years and not get any work and yeah. still survive. Whereas, you and know, they can come into the profession, which is notoriously hard, and they can make a name for themselves because they can go through that periods of unemployment, yeah. which everybody else has. So, ipso facto, it becomes a middle class profession, a bit like journalism or whatever. You know, it's not the only profession that's no. doing that. A bit, you know, sometimes a bit like politics. But, I mean, it is... That's what we're creating, I think. Yeah. It's bad, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, what, it's what Adam Sandler says at the end of the comedy. Is that what he goes, goes, He just does a big speech Maybe like if that. I do the cobbler too. Yeah. Which is... <laughs> People will be very upset. Which will be me and me flip-flops. <laughs> could you do it with the sock? I could do it with... I could have <laughs> yeah, Adam yeah. Sandler's shoes and Kevin Bacon's sock. <laughs> That's a movie I'm going to be in next. <laughs> <laughs> and you lived in uh, White City. I, li I, lived I, in Shep did. I lived in Shepherd's Bush for a long time. I just moved out of Shepherd's Bush. I lived in the White City you. estate. And uh, there was a pub called the Springbok, which we used to go to. Oh, yes. And then uh, another pub called the, the General Smuts. Because it was all about the South African. Mm. You know, it was built for the... Uh, you know, I lived on South Africa Road. Canada Way, South Africa Road, all around there. Bloemfontein Road. Bloemfontein Road, yeah. <laughs> it's because it was all about... It was built for the Commonwealth Games, all that, that estate. And uh, I lived there for a while, and it was, it was tough. I mean, it was tough in the sense that, you know, it was... Uh, very urban and sort of, you know, it was, it was, I didn't have any money and, you know, I wasn't eating very well and all that. So that was what was happening. But I mean, I was really thankful of being there. I love that part of London. In fact, QPR is my London team I because guess. it's right by where we were. So I used to go there. It was only, this is how old I am. They had the Astro Turf then. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, I used to, and, they, and, and literally you could just go up, pay and get in, you know. So I used to see a lot of football there. But uh, I loved it around there. And the, it was sort of the Shepherd's Bush, the Bush Theatre was there as well. So I used to see a lot of theatre okay, there. Yeah. And that was a really important place for me. Did you, did you ever perform at the Bush Theatre? I never did, no. I think it was uh, because I lived so close. It was like I never performed at the Bush Theatre and I never got a job for the BBC. And then when I moved away, <laughs> I, I got a job for the BBC. So there was always that stuff. But yeah. no, I never went. It's quite. It was quite rough in those days. White City, especially, was it? Was it? Yeah, but it was. There was a lot going on. There was. Yeah. A, I remember. Um, there was a lot of good community stuff going yeah, on as well. It was rough, but it was not. It wasn't rough. It wasn't any rougher from where I came from. That's true. Didn't want to say it myself. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> have you been? Have you been up to where I come from? Yeah, I have, of course. I love. <laughs> Wait till you get back. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there enough that I can do jokes about Liverpool. It takes a long time to go to Liverpool yeah. and be able to do jokes about Liverpool. Yeah, you don't want to be you don't want to be opening with that. <laughs> you know when you get up there. Well, I did a gig where I I did a joke about Liverpool, got nothing, and then I said Liverpool best sense of humour in the world, and that got a laugh. So that, 
<laughs> I can't remember what I said about them. It was something nice. And I, I didn't... God, there's so much, so many things. And I, well, I was going to compare you to Albert Finney. In that, With Albert Finney, when he died, I obviously knew he'd done loads of things, and I obviously knew he'd done these parts. But he, you so identified him, the parts with the character, that you forgot it was Albert Finney. I forgot he was Hercule Poirot. I thought yeah. that I just thought that's Hercule Poirot more than you used enough or anyone else has yeah. done it. You picture him and then you go, oh, fuck, that was Albert Finney. Yeah. And in and Annie and things like you know, he was Aaron in so Brockovich. I mean he's yeah. great in Aaron Brockovich. And yeah. also he's in a he's in uh, Tim Burton's film Big Fish, which I think he's great in. Yeah. And uh, it's a wonderful film that got slagged off and I just it broke me up. I've seen it so many times, Billy Crudup and stuff. And it was a really great film. And he was I saw him on stage, he was in Orphans at the Hampstead Theatre, which is like a sm like this, you know, it's not a big West End venue. All and right. he was, and he, <laughs> you know, you'll get there one day. <laughs> you know, you've got to start somewhere. And, um, but he was like, he was so close to me and I was amazed, but he was brilliant. I, I, and he was, it was very important for me, uh, you know, as a working class man to see him. Yeah. yeah, but I think that you have, as an actor, you have that element, I think, where I think, you know, aside from maybe the, those big blockbusting, you know, The Walking Dead, you could walk down the street and people wouldn't, they'd have seen many of your things and wouldn't notice you, I think, you know, yeah. because I think because you inhabit the character so much. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm trying to do. I think what I, I don't want people to recognize me, I want them to see the character. It's harder now, I think, but you know, it's harder just with your body of work. But um, yeah, I'm always looking to sort of change myself to sort of suit the to suit the role, I think. Yeah. yeah. Not not externally so much, but, but again, that's the thing that's changed with, and a lot of acting is just somebody it does th themselves, isn't it? A lot, a lot of the film roles and a lot of the TV roles well, seem to be the, someone doing yeah, a, I mean, just doing a version of themselves. There's two, which is no bad thing, I no. think. You know, but there's two types of acting. I think is when you read a character and you think, how can I make this character like me, or how can I make me like this character? That's the two the questions you have. But they're both successful. I mean, and they're both uh, valid, you know. I mean, one of the big things I had recently was another hero of mine was Michael Caine, you know. Michael Caine is an actor who's very, not very similar in all his roles, but he's known for being Michael Caine, yeah, yeah. you know. And I did a movie with him, and it's my only fanboy moment ever. And uh, it was the first, I'd met him, we'd done the read-through, we'd done some rehearsals. And the first scene I had was, he's playing loud music in his room, I have to knock on the door, he opens the door and I have to tell him off. And that's the scene. And we rehearse it a few times and the director says, let's go for a take, put the clapperboard on. And I stand outside this room and I think, God, I wish my mum and dad were alive now to see me being in a scene with Michael Caine. If they'd known I could have I've got to this place. Action! And I had nothing. My whole face just went boff. And he said, I said, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I don't know what I'm doing. And we had to go again. And then later on I explained to him, he said, It's all right, I'm all the time. And I was like, you know, but it was like seeing him in the flesh. Yeah. And and I so because I used to watch those movies with my dad. You yeah. Know? Because that's the other thing, is actually as a man being an actor and sort of having to explain that to your parents, particularly your dad, that that's what you want to do. And this was at a time when, you know, I guess you know, my father wasn't enlightened as he could have been. And he was worried about it. He was worried about the fact that, it, A, it wasn't a job for life, but it was no job for a boy. It was no job for a man. And I was saying, but dad, you know, you would... You watch John Wayne, you watch Michael Caine. He was like, yeah, you, are, you know, I don't, they're, they're not actors. What you're talking about is something different. And I was like, no, they're the guys you watch. You know, they're film stars. They're not actors. And then you had to really work hard then to prove to him particularly, not to my mates so much, but to him. And sadly, he died before I had any success. But the sense that, you know, this was a job for a a man, and I still struggle with that. Not that, that it's a job for a man, but I also struggle with the fact that I think this is no job for an adult. <laughs> it's really hard, and I do. It is strange, but I do sit there and I think, like my my dad was a cobbler, and his hands were like pieces of meat. It's like my little th finger was his thumb, and. His hands spanned from there. It was like his hands were massive and gnarled and black. And like his nails were just like lunar landscapes. 
And I've always been embarrassed about my hands because there's like, you think, well, these aren't working hands. And it was really strange, that thing of, of for ages. And I still have a little flip about it of looking at myself thinking, you know, I'll be putting my makeup on thinking, <laughs> what am I doing, you know? But and I, I, I've worked through that, but it yeah. still hijacks me sometimes about... And also I feel guilty because I love my job, you know, and it's that sense of, you know, if you, if you do a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life, really. And I, I feel like that. I feel there's a charlatan inside there. And I think that's where that research stuff comes from. And the geeky side, I feel like I, I've got to work hard to earn this stuff, although I do like it. You know, yeah. it's not like a chore. But it's that sense of, is this a job? Is this a man's job? Am I working hard? It sort of trips me up every now and again about sure. it. Well, so we did a po podcast together with, when we met with uh, Sarah Millican, which was an international men's day, uh, yeah. which usually has all women on a podcast, and she had all men on a podcast. And we got into quite interesting territory with that. Yeah. I mean, you're very, you are, you know, th all that stuff's very sensitive, and, you know, but it is, you're still going back to that, that previous generation view of, Yes. You know, I mean, we're all probably just trying to please our dads in one way or another. But or get so away from them. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's pleasing him and there's also trying to get away from it. I mean, my, I had a very complicated relationship with my dad. And it's that sense of, like, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of... This sounds mad, but the idea that, like, I have a great relationship with my kids where I hug them a lot and I tell them I love them a lot. And they're like, that's all right, you know. <laughs> I say, I just want you to know I love you. Because I never got that. So there's that sense of, you know, my dad was very sort of, I mean, he'd had a really awful time himself, I think, in his childhood. But he wasn't very, you know, affectionate in that way. It wasn't, you know, he didn't show great affection. And that, I, I struggle with that. But also then it comes into, for my job, my job is about exploring human character. That's what it is. Yeah. And I'm very good at exploring human character externally for other characters. But when it comes to me, I'm like, oh, I'm, I don't want to go there. <laughs> and it's only the last couple of years, or last, certainly the last five or six years, that I've started to turn that around and think, well, why do I do that? Why am I like that? And I think it is, it's also to do with that debate about toxic masculinity. Yeah. About why am I like that? Why am I programmed like that? Why do I accept this? You know, why do I take that for granted? Those questions start to f real filter into me now. Because it is about the change of behavior. I do think that, you know, I think men have a big problem. They are a big problem. Yeah. And in order to sort of change the way the world is, it's about looking at yourself and going, I'm the problem there. So how do I change that? I have to start changing that bigger picture by changing this. So there's all that stuff of digging it out. That's really tough, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is, that, that's that's what's I mean that's what's very interesting about the you know because I think it's easy to, you know it is easy to dismiss actors and I think a lot of people do it and some actors deserve a to lot be of, a lot of directors and, yeah but you know <laughs> but I think as a you know I'm more a writer than a, an, a of, of dramas and comedies and things like that rather than an actor in them generally but you know when you get good actors you go oh you know as a writer you go thank God for this we've got someone who understands this it's 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 a very specific thing. I think you're kind of unusual in that you are you, you are like thoughtful. I mean, I, yeah, I, I don't. There's lots I don't of wanna, actors like I that. don't want to offend actors. <laughs> there's a lot of actors who are really brilliant, instinctive actors who, in a way, haven't. You know, the, when you talk to them, you kind of go, okay. But then there's that thing. A lot of the time, creative people have this thing of if, if it's not broke, don't fix it. If it's working then why do, you know, why do I want to look into that? Don't look yeah. into that place because actually it's working anyway, so I don't want to examine it too much because the magic will go out the way. And I do understand that sometimes. Yeah. But, you know, I think the older you get, the more you can't live off that. You have to start looking in those dark corners, really. But I don't, you know, most of the actors I know are, are you know, well-read, intelligent people. But yeah. the inst instinctive actors are interesting because... If you're in a play for six months, your instincts can only take you so far. You know, you get there in rehearsal, but after about a month or th two months, you've got to start finding something else. And that's, yeah. that's about just play, really. It's also that idea of failure, of, of the fear of failure. In a way, one of the things that I've 
started to do, and been doing this for a while, is the end product and the audience are slightly the least important thing for me. I like the process. The process is what makes it fun for me. So, like, I don't really watch myself on TV. I, mean, I used to watch myself all the time because I had to watch myself because at first I was watch it and think, God, the size of my nose, or why did I have my hair cut like that, or why do I sound like that? And I had to watch it a few times before I started to watch it the way that everybody else was watching it, getting away from my vanity and my ego, and then I'd watch those things. But now I don't because the film or the television thing at the end of the stage, that's got, it's slightly got nothing to do with me. The day I'm working and what I'm doing on that day with those people, that's all my responsibility. What they do with it afterwards is, you know, fine, off you go. Sure. You know, I mean, I, it's not my responsibility. A bit like reviews. I don't read reviews, not because I'm like, oh, I don't read reviews. It's like, they've got nothing to do with me. Yeah. They're not written for me. I've got to go and see the play. I, you know, I read reviews because I think, shall I go and see this? If I'm in the play, I know I've got to go and see it because I'm in it. <laughs> so there's no point me reading the review. So it's, and the worst thing about reviews is when they say something good, particularly if you're in a play. Yeah. I love that moment when he does, kills it completely. Yeah. So I don't read it for those reasons, but the process of doing it is the thing that's most important for me. Uh, what happens to it afterwards is, I used to, the worst thing for me as, a, as an actor was always the journey in the car at the end of the day from the studio home. I'd get in the car, I'd be knackered, I'd sit down, and then I'd go, why didn't I do that? I could have done that. That would have been good. I and then he would, and then, and I'd had this debate with myself all the way home about how good the scene could have been than, than I've just done. Yeah. And actually, I had to stop that because that was madness. And now what I do is, on the day, I fight like hell to get the story I want to come across. Uh, and once I've done that, I have to let it go. Yeah, it's well, it's very admirable. I think it's it's very, it's very, and you know, you create histories for characters when it's not a real person. And you I have, do, yeah. You, so you create the backstory for all those people. I do, yeah. Which I, I mean, so I write a lot. I do a lot of writing before a, uh, the, a job starts. If I've got the time, you know, sometimes they say, "Can you start on Monday?" <laughs> you know, you think, "Oh, who's dropped out?" Uh, and, <laughs> and and that's fine, but it means I can't do as much. Uh, but if I have the chance, I'll write a long backstory, which nobody else gets to read. I just have it. Yeah, but you know that work pays off, and you know I think it's it, it's it's a fascinating job. And you know, being an actor is such an important job. Like like you say, for your parents, those film stars were totally. You know, I never do cry. No, I never do cry. The fact that it's uh, yeah. entertainment. I mean, or, or, you know, for me. I know when I first, and I've said this very often, is the, uh, when I first saw Kez, Kez was the film that made me go, oh my goodness, they're telling stories about people like me. Before then, I'd really enjoyed, you know, Coronation Street, I'd really enjoyed the Hollywood musicals, I'd really enjoyed big movies. But suddenly I watch a film and I'm like, that's my school. They're my teachers. And I was thinking about that, being an actor at that time, but when I watched Cares, it really troubled me. It really got me in the gut what happened to this kid. Uh, it was like a documentary, and I knew it wasn't a documentary because his mum was in Coronation Street, so, you know, <laughs> I knew that. But it was sort of really upset me in a way that it happened to me or a friend of mine. And I think part of me becoming an actor was to try and find out what had happened to that kid because I wanted to know how they made that movie. How did they make, how does Ken Loach make me feel like this? I want to find out. And then I want to pass it on. That's the other thing. Then I want to be in that world. And they, they were the things that really got me. Cool. Um, it's really interesting to talk to you. Um, uh, the one thing I wanted to say was, um, you played the Scarecrow in Wizard of Oz when I you did. were in school. Yeah. Um, Peter Kay played the lion in the Wizard of Oz. I was wondering if we could put together uh -huh. like an all celebrity version of Wizard of Oz, with, but only with people who played the parts at school. So if you're up for that, yeah. watch out, PK, though. He doesn't come to all the rehearsals. And if he isn't at the rehearsal, he'll just dance around and still focus from everyone and then say he was the best. But apart from that, it's. it's <laughs> There's the voice, the voice of experience yeah. there, is there? <laughs> that's what he writes about in his autobiography. <laughs> He didn't turn up for the day of rehearsal and then he got annoyed that everyone else was doing their song, so he just danced up and down the aisles. 
And stole it. He stole it, and, and he was brilliant, apparently. That's <laughs> what I read in his book. <laughs> so... <laughs> look, it's been really... I'm so glad you came on, and uh, you you're much, much better than Michael Sheen, because you turned up. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, David Morrissey to Ask Wrestling. Thank you. See you next week, you'll be coming. How do you like them sky potatoes? <laughs>